Well, our scripture lesson this morning is from Mark chapter one, verses 40 and 40 through 45. And you'll find that on page 837 of your pew Bible, 837 of your pew Bible. We'll finish up the first chapter of Mark this morning. Read with me, beginning in verse 40. And a leper came to him, that is to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Yesterday, a couple of my children came to me after playing a little bit outside and they were a little bit muddy and they uh, had fallen down outside in the mud and in the rain and gotten a little bit dirty. And it reminded me of a time when I was a young boy as well, when my sister and I rode our bikes off to a park and we began playing in the mud along with some other friends. And the play just continued and continued to the point where we were covered from head to toe with mud. And I can remember getting back on our bikes where the tires were caked in mud and riding and the mud was flying all over the place. And by the time we got home, uh, the mud had begun to dry a bit. And we knocked on the door and stood out in the front yard waiting for our parents to come to the door and seeing my parents open the door. And I'm not sure whether they wanted to laugh or to cry or to scream, but there we were. Our clothes were ruined. They were caked in mud and they had to get out the water hose to basically hose us down and begin to rinse off this mud that had caked on. And, you know, parents do that sort of thing, don't they? Their child is in need. Their child is dirty. They need to be cleaned or their child is sick or has an injury. They need to go to the doctor and parents will quickly scoop up a child and take them as fast as they can that they might be cleaned up or brought to a place where they can find healing. Now, this particular man in the story, this leper that we read of has no family that can do that for him. In fact, there's no one who can do anything for him. No one that can clean him up, so to speak. Leprosy in the ancient world was sort of a catch-all word for various skin conditions from psoriasis and ringworm to what we call in our modern day Hansen's disease. That is to say, leprosy as we know it with open sores that fester on the body. And it was recorded throughout ancient history to be epidemic in a number of different places, including Egypt at one point in, I believe, the second century, uh, second millennium B.C., where leprosy just seemed to cover the entire country in this great epidemic. It was a painful, grotesque disease as it still is today. And yet it was incurable in those days so that the rabbis who spoke of leprosy could say the cure of a leper was as difficult as raising a person from the dead. 
And so this man, as he is faced with this lifelong disease of leprosy, knows that there's nothing that anybody can do. And yet there's more behind the story than simply his physical ailment that he's going through. You see all these various skin conditions that were commonly linked under the term of leprosy would make someone ritually unclean according to the law of Moses. If we were to turn back to Leviticus chapter 13, and I would actually encourage you sometime this week to to read through Leviticus 13 and 14 and see exactly what the Mosaic law prescribed. But in Leviticus chapter 13, describing all these different skin diseases that the priests were to examine. And if anybody had them, they were ritually unclean. And if that was the case, the law prescribed this. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. He shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean to anybody who was walking by that they might not be unclean as well. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. You see, this man likely lived in a leper colony, away from family and friends, away from the normal ways of life, with nothing to do but suffer with the other lepers who had the same disease alongside him. You see, the rabbis even came up with extra rules beyond the Old Testament prescriptions about what lepers were to do. And how other people might become unclean if they had any contact with them. So this man was isolated. So there was the, the pain of the physical ailment itself. But then there was the pain that came along with being isolated from family and friends. Even isolated, you might say, from God himself. And it brings us to the first point that we see here in this particular story. And that is this. Suffering produces a desire for what only Jesus can offer. Suffering produces a desire for what only Jesus can offer. Now, in ancient Israel, in those days, it was a very poor country. Poverty reigned. There was a great disparity between the haves and the have nots. It's why you see vast numbers of people, great crowds coming to Jesus just for bread, because they had nothing. Their houses were very poor. The life expectancy was somewhere just over 40. Disease was rampant in that particular culture at that time. In other words, these people knew suffering. They knew hunger. They knew disease. They knew poverty. And this man knew it too. And he had lost So much because of this particular disease being shunned by the community, required to live outside the city, being asked to proclaim when anybody was to walk by at any close proximity to him, unclean, unclean. In other words, don't come near me. I am not fit to be in your presence. Reminiscence of Peter when. Jesus brought in this eyes and said, get away from me, Lord, for I am an un. 
I'm not fit to be in your presence. And this man knew what it was like to suffer here in this leper colony. May have gone to the priests over and over again, asking that the priests might examine him. Am I clean now? Can I come back now? Can I, we, can I be welcomed once again into the presence of God and worship in the temple? Can I go back to my family and my friends? Only to hear again and again, you're unclean. So this particular man, we, we see him coming in desperation to Jesus. If you will, you can make me clean. It's his confidence that Jesus can do something about it. He's probably heard the reports that this man is out healing people of all kinds of diseases. He's casting out demons. Surely he can do something for me that the priests could never do. And yet his request is a surprising one. Remember, he's supposed to stay away. He's supposed to pronounce to people that get anywhere near him, unclean, unclean. But it's a sign of faith, isn't it? Or at least desperation caused by suffering. I've got nowhere else to go. And you see, it's that kind of faith, that sense of desperation for Jesus that Jesus actually honors in the gospel narratives. If we were to turn over a few pages to Mark chapter 5, you see Jairus coming to Jesus on behalf of his daughter who is ill. Now, Jairus is a synagogue ruler. And he's going to align himself with Jesus, who at that point is beginning to receive opposition for the Jews. And yet he is a synagogue ruler and doesn't care because his daughter is ill. You see, suffering produces a sense of desperation and only Jesus can deal with this. But it's not only Jairus. Think of the Syrophoenician woman again in Mark chapter seven, a few more pages over. She's not a Jew, and yet she comes to Jesus and begs him. That her daughter would be made clean from this particular demon. And Jesus says, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. In other words, because you come to me in faith, trusting that I can do something about it. Then I will honor you. We could go on and on of instances in the gospel narratives where Jesus rewards this kind. of Only he can do something about it. But you see, it's prompted by suffering, isn't it? It's because of suffering that these people are driven to Jesus. If you will, you can't me clean. It's the same sense of desperation that the disciples had. Jesus had fed the 5,000 and yet began to speak of himself as the bread of life and that people needed to feed upon his flesh. And many in the crowd began to go away because they couldn't swallow and take in what he was saying, it seemed so grotesque. And he asked his close disciples, do you want to leave too? You remember the reply? Oh, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? Where else can we go? And it's that sense of suffering in this life that brings us to that point where we come to Jesus and say, where else can we go? Please make me clean. 
It's the proper response to cry out to Jesus for help. And you notice this man here. He actually doesn't ask Jesus to heal him. What he asks for is to be made clean. And there's a distinction there. Because what's spoken of in the Old Testament law about being clean is not so much a physical healing, but it's about ritual purity, about being cleansed spiritually so that you're able to be ritually pure and come into God's presence to be welcomed by him. In fact, all of the Old Testament laws that seem so strange to us, whether it's the food laws, whether it's laws of ritual purity, whether it's the fact that they were not supposed to mix different types of thread together or mix different types of seeds together. Everything was to point symbolically and metaphorically to their purity as a people of God. And if there's something impure about them, then they can't be welcomed within the camp. They can't be welcomed in the presence of God. And so here for this man, his physical disease was a metaphor that testified to him that what was true on the outside was a reflection of what was on the inside. That the foulness of his sores and his open wounds reflected the foulness of his own heart. That sin so pervaded his heart that it was a stench to the Lord. So that when he said, unclean, unclean, it was almost as if he was saying, sinner, sinner, don't come near. Now imagine if you had to say that every time you came near someone. Cautious. Be careful. I'm a sinner. You want nothing to do with me. If you come too close to me, I will dance my sin. I will make you unclean because of my sin. See, that's the kind of powerful witness that this man's disease was supposed to have. It was supposed to reveal a deep sense of need for the cleansing that only Jesus can give. Now, the same is true for us in a different way. We don't live under the Mosaic law anymore. But every sense of suffering in this fallen world ought to be a testimony to us that not only is the world fallen, but it's fallen because of sin. It's fallen because of sin. Now, that's not to say that every bit of suffering in your life can be pinpointed to one particular sin that you have committed. But it's to be a testimony to us that we are sinners. So that we ought not to fight against our sufferings and, and shake our fists at God and say, God, why did you bring this upon me? This is your fault. No, we are not to have hard hearts, but soft hearts. So we say, oh, Lord, teach me what this means about the inner reality of my own wickedness, the inner reality of my own heart. And that was to be the true for this man. So that every ailment that he endured and every ailment that we endure is to show us just how much we need a savior can recall a friend in college who was a troubled person. He often gave himself to, to partying, and I lived with him on a number of occasions. And I can remember a number of occasions where he would come to me late at night on, say, a Friday night when he had been out 
partying with friends. And in a drunken stupor, he would say, Matt, I just, I just need to talk to you. Something's got to change. I need to talk to you. And yet the very next morning, he would wake up and he would want nothing to do with me. See, that reality of the, the angst in his own heart was a testimony. There's something wrong here. And yet he was unwilling to follow through and to pursue what only Jesus could give to him. My friends, we don't want to be like that. Rather, we want to listen to our pain. Because you see, we don't have to go looking for it. It will find us. Pain will find you in this life. And as C.S. Lewis said, who was, knew much of the pain of this life, said, pain is God's megaphone. He's calling out to you. And are you listening like this man so that you come with a sense of desperation to Christ so that you get to the point where your life is as repulsive to you as it is to Jesus? Just as the stench of this man's disease was a stench in Jesus' presence, we recognize that that is true of us as well. So often we, we speak of sin being an iceberg and we only see the tip of it. And so much of it is beneath the surface that we never see and never recognize. And most of the time, that is just fine with us. We're very complacent. We're very happy for sin to be suppressed down like that from view so that it doesn't come up into our face so that we're not overwhelmed by it. And this man could not get away from his illness. And therefore, he couldn't get away from the testimony about himself of just how much he needed a savior. So he comes with a sense of desperation. My friends, when is the last time you've cried out to Jesus? Oh, Jesus, make me clean. Make me clean. And so suffering drives us to Jesus for what only he can give. But secondly, Jesus can cleanse while the law condemns. Now, this man, as I said before, had likely not been touched in years. I don't know how long he had suffered from leprosy, but he had not been touched physically by family or friends, maybe by a fellow leper in the leper colony. But it had been a long time. Sort of like AIDS patients, if you remember back in the 1980s and early 90s when very little was known about AIDS and there was such a, a fear of contact, or contracting the disease just by contacting a person. And if you remember what Princess Diana did back in maybe the late 80s when she went to Africa and right before the watching world, here was the princess spotless in her outfit and reaching out and touching these AIDS patients. And it almost made the world gasp. What is she doing? In a sense, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's not supposed to touch this man. And yet we're told, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him. He stretched out his hands and grabbed hold of the man with an affection that the man had never felt for a long time. And he said, I will. 
be clean. Jesus had compassion for the broken. This word pity here is the same word from compassion. If you remember from the parable of the good Samaritan, where he had compassion on the man who was beaten and lying on the road. Jesus saw something of his own brokenness in this man, not his sin. But Jesus was very accustomed himself to the brokenness of this life. Having been born in a humble stable, having been raised by a carpenter, most likely knowing all the frailties of physical life, and ultimately knowing the brokenness and uncleanness of being hung on the cross. And Jesus could look at this particular man with great compassion, with great pity, and desire to touch him and to make him clean. See, if we were to read through Leviticus 14, one of the things that you would see there is the extensive and expensive way in which this man would be made at least ritually clean. He would shave off his head and shave off his beard, shave off even his eyebrows as a visible testimony to everybody that this man has now been made clean. He would offer sacrifices He would be washed with the blood of the sacrifices. But you see, that could only make him ritually clean. And Jesus here can do what the law could not do. Which was actually to cleanse his soul. To cleanse his heart from sin. To wash him in a way that he had never been washed before. Remember the story of a a young boy who was allowed to go out and play with his friends by his mother. And they lived adjacent to some woods and there was a a drainage ditch. And within that drainage ditch was um, uh, some real filth and mud and stench. And his mother told him, whatever you do, don't go across the ditch. Of course, playing with his other friends, they wanted him to go farther to go across the boundary marker that his mother had given to them. And he did. He jumped across the ditch and he had made it. They began to play off in the woods. And when it was time to come home, he could hear his mother calling. And he said, I've got to go. And the other boys ran ahead and they ran and jumped over the ditch. And he ran and planted his foot to jump over the ditch. And you know how it ends. He falls face first into this filth. And he comes walking home to his mother in tears, afraid of what she's going to say, and yet also fearful of what he has put upon himself. And his mother just stoops down and embraces him. And that's a picture of what Jesus has done by embracing this man and by embracing sinners. Because you see, it wasn't just that Jesus was willing to make the man clean, but in a symbolic sense, Jesus was willing to take all of his uncleanness upon himself. In fact, so much so is he willing to do that, that Jesus would be willing to take the the ultimate in ritual uncleanness on himself by dying outside the camp on the cross. Because as you remember of the parable of the good Samaritan, the dead are Uh, ritually unclean. And if you were to have any contact with them, you would be unclean. 
And so Jesus is willing to take on this man's uncleanness just as He's willing to take on the uncleanness and impurity of all of our sin as well. In other words, He was willing to do what the law could never do for you. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. Jesus did what the law could not do. The law can never save you. Martin Luther, in speaking of this passage in Romans, said, Run, sinner, run, the law demands but gives him neither feet nor hands. A new law the gospel brings. It bids him fly and gives him wings. See, Jesus has accomplished for you what the law could never accomplish for you. All it could do was pronounce this man to be unclean or pronounce him to be clean. But it could never make him clean. And Jesus is able to make you clean. And yet so often we... Look to our performance of the law to make us clean. Think of the difference that you feel between those good days spiritually and those bad days spiritually. On those bad days when you've been tempted again and again and given yourself a little bit more and a little bit more to that temptation. And over time you've wandered away from God just a bit where you You don't feel like reading His Word and you don't pray to Him. And over time, you have this sense of guilt and shame. And you don't want to come back to Him because you have so much shame. You see, that's because you're trusting in the law to make you clean. But then when you have a good day, you read your Bible, and you seem to, on the outside at least, help people and do things rightly, And you at least feel a greater sense of confidence before the Lord. You do all the right kind of Christian activities. And it makes you feel more acceptable in front of the Father. And what's going on here in this particular account is to say, the law could never make you clean. Don't have any more confidence before the Father because you've had a good day. The only confidence you should have before the Father is that Christ makes you clean. And so Jesus is able to do what the law can't. And then finally this, Jesus' cleansing restores fellowship with God. We're told here in verse 43 that Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing, uh, for your cleansing what Moses commanded. For a proof to them. So Jesus here insists that the man fulfill the law by going to the priest, by making the right kind of offering and being declared by the law ritually pure, ritually clean. And Jesus is insistent upon this. And yet the man disobeys, we're told in verse 45. He went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, from one point of view, you can't blame the man. He's been healed. He's been made clean. He can go back to his family. He can go back to the city once again. 
you would be overjoyed. You'd want to tell everybody. You can almost imagine him saying, do you see me? I'm clean. Do you see that man over there? His name is Jesus. He's the one who has done it for me. And yet Jesus has sternly charged him not to do that. Why? Well, part of the reason is that Jesus is no longer able to go into the towns, but has to go out into the open spaces. Remember from last week in verse 39, he wanted to go through Galilee preaching about the kingdom because that is the mission for which he had come. And now he's inhibited from doing that. But I think there's something far more that's going on here as well. You see, the law provided a way for the man to be declared ritually clean and pure. And what Jesus wants is the man to not only be made clean, but now to be restored to fellowship with God. So that being made ritually clean, he can now enter into the temple to once again enjoy the worship of his heavenly father to be restored. Jesus wants far more for him than just to go out and skip along and tell everybody I'm clean, I'm clean. But rather to rejoice in the Lord and to be present with him, to take joy in him. And the priests were supposed to see this, too. We're told that Jesus wants him to offer proof to them of his cleansing. Now, the priest during Jesus's ministry, you might say, received many lepers back and declared them clean. And they must have wondered what is taking place here. Remember, they thought it was is uh, almost the same as raising someone from the dead as healing a leper. What's taking place here? And what should have been in their minds is that, wow, this is a sign of the, the inbreaking of the messianic age that Christ, the son of God, has come. Because Jesus, when he sent out his disciples, he told them, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers. When the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and they asked, are you the one? He says, now you watch me and you take back to your uh, master, John, what you see. And part of what they saw was the cleansing of lepers. It was to be a sign to the priests and to everyone else that the inbreaking and the messianic age had begun, that the Son of God had come in the flesh. And this story here is a transition point in the Gospel of Mark between the inauguration of Jesus' ministry of proclaiming the kingdom and rising tension towards Jesus. Because people aren't going to receive the good news of the messianic kingdom. See, what Jesus wanted for this man is don't be satisfied with a miracle worker. Only be satisfied when you're reconciled to your heavenly father. Only be satisfied when you're reconciled to your heavenly father. Recognize that I am the final solution to your problem of being not only ritually unclean, but sinful and impure, and Christ provides the reconciliation to God that we so desperately need. Jesus wanted to make the man not only clean, but reconciled to, your, to his God. My friends, is that what you want most? Is that what you want most in life? To know your God. To be reconciled to him. 
to be so brought into fellowship with Him that everything else in this life begins to fade away. Is that what you see in your life? Do you pursue Him with that kind of passion and vigor? Are you taken up with the words of the psalmist, Who am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Does everything else pale in comparison to knowing God? Or is He simply a sideline show in your life? Because what Jesus wants for you is for you to know the Heavenly Father the same way He knows the Heavenly Father. To find such joy and delight in Him that your first instinct every day is that you want to know Him more. That you want to be caught up into Him. That you want to learn about Him. That you want to walk in His ways as we've already read from the psalmist earlier today. I want to run in the path of Your commands because You enlarge my heart towards You. Because you see what He's doing to this man. He's saying, look, the law can't cleanse you. Only I can cleanse you. But once I do, now you go to the law as a way to love your Heavenly Father. Because now He's not only restored to God, but He's restored to His neighbor. He can once again be in fellowship with people and begin to live out the law that God has given to him. Not to be clean, but because he already is clean. The great difference there between serving God in order to be clean and serving God because you have been made clean by Christ. My friends, that's exactly what Jesus does when he comes in, doesn't he? He brings a sense of wholeness, of wellness. But not so that we can enjoy in it and bask in it ourselves. But so that we can brought, be brought into further fellowship with our Heavenly Father. I hope that's our desire today. That we would want more and more to go to our Father and say, praise you that you have sent your Son. And now I'm welcomed into your presence. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do look to You. We know that Your Son is the only one who can make us clean. We come to Him now. We trust in His grace. And we pray, Lord, that You would free us by Him to no longer look to the law as a way of feeling a sense of assurance. But rather, we would look to Jesus. And having looked to Jesus, Long to be with you. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.